0: So I was thinking as the kids leave, a question that I have and a question I will someday ask my kids, right? And we often find that others of us have different things. We answer this question, but we're to ask this question, here's the question What is your reputation? What is your reputation? If I were to ask that question to your friends and your family, you might get one answer, to coworkers, another, to people who knew you in the past, a radically different answer. So I was thinking, who are the people in time that we've come to know their reputations were one thing, but then some stuff came out, and then we're like, ooh, right? Like, we talk about Bill Cosby or Tiger Woods or Lance Armstrong. They're all people that had these great reputations being wholesome, good people. And then you find out about their life, and you go, whoa, not what I thought. But reputations are the things we see publicly, and, and like I said, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, and we don't always know what determines those things. And I was thinking um, if I were to ask people in your life or my life, would they say of us, like, hey, hey, good worker, works hard, right? Cares about the family, compassionate, or would they say, hmm, lazy, deadbeat parent, right? Entitled, judgmental. What, what would be the phrase that we begin to use to describe you and I? And what happens over time, here's the reality for us. Depending on who we ask and when in our life might determine a different answer. So I was thinking about when I was a teenager. Um, I got a nickname in my house growing up. I didn't really love it. Um, it was an awful nickname from my perspective. Um, and here was the nickname. It was half-do, and it was given by my father. Because like most teenagers, some of you in the room are like, hmm, maybe, we'll see what he says. But... I would get a chore or a project I was supposed to do, and I didn't want to do it, and so I would half do it. I would finish half of it and kind of like quit and move on. And it annoyed my father so much because he's like, just finish the project that you're working on. And so I was called half to for years. I hated it. In fact, it took me going to college, getting a degree, a job, having a family, and finishing projects before. I haven't heard that in so long I don't remember the last time I heard it, right? Because my behavior led to a reputation, right? Whether it was true of my character was irrelevant, but that was definitely, definitely a nickname I had to deal with because my reputation was whatever the project, you just half finish it. Well, here's the reality for us. Um, We can make significant strides in certain areas of our life, and sometimes people don't notice. Sometimes we're changed and we grow, and it's why often the hardest people to show who we now are are the people who know us the best like our friends or our spouses or our coworkers or whoever it might be, our parents, right, our family members typically, because reputations sometimes are given when they're deserved or even not deserved, right? It could be some momentary issue or momentary moment, and that becomes your reputation. But here's the reality. Our character is who we are when no one else is watching. Reputations sometimes aren't fair or real. But our character is always But what if somehow the resurrection of Jesus can speak into our lives in such a way that both our reputation and our character could possibly be changed? Our character definitely, our reputation maybe. We'll begin to recognize that it speaks to who we are becoming. Did you know you and I can be changed? We don't have to be who we used to be. It is possible to live a radically new life in fact, our reputation may be one thing, but over time, we can be so transformed that who we used to be is not who we are any longer. Right? There's a guy in the name, Bible named Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus, and Peter had all kinds of reputations. Right? He was kind of volatile and hot-headed and passionate. Right? And He was a person who was impetuous, and, and I know none of you in this room are like this. He was the kind of person that would speak before he thought. I know none of us in this room would ever act in that way, but that was who Peter was. So here's just a few stories about Peter. Peter was the one who was willing to get out of the boat to walk on the water, but then his fear got the better of him, and he was afraid, and Jesus grabbed him. But he did get out of the boat. Like, he was impetuous and willing to do something and take risks. He's also the first one to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter's the same one who's told by Jesus to get behind me, Satan, because Peter's plans were not the plans that Jesus had. He's the one that, rather than being silent when he should have been silent, he says to those around Jesus, Hey, we should just build you an altar and one for Moses and Elijah at the moment of transfiguration when he should have just probably kept his mouth shut. Right? He's the one who says, I'll never deny you, Jesus, and then does it three times. He grabs a sword and cuts off a soldier's ear, and Jesus says, put that away. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Peter, stop acting that way. Right? He's the one who, after he denied Jesus three times, and Jesus comes to him, on the beach, he says, Peter, do you love me? He goes, well, of course I love you, Jesus. Ask him again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you, Jesus. And he asks a third time. And he's like, Jesus, of course I love you. And so he's like, hey, by the way, this is me forgiving you for the three times you already denied me. And then he says this, feed my sheep. Right? The same guy who was impetuous, who did all kinds of dumb things, who denied Jesus, is the same one that Jesus says is the rock that I'll build my church upon. Crazy, right? Becomes a leader in the early church. Some things he overcomes in his life, other things he doesn't. Like there's a, an example of a story in the book of Acts where Peter and Paul, Paul's another figure in the early church who was a leader. Peter and Paul kind of got in an argument. And Paul was right, and here's why Paul was right. See, Peter decided that um, he was going to hang out with the Gentiles who had been uncircumcised. Weird thing, I know. Um, and said, it's okay, God doesn't care whether they're circumcised or not. But in Jewish tradition, that was a big deal. And so other Jews began to say to Peter, Peter, I don't think you should be hanging out with them. Not those people. Not until they get that done. And Paul's like, Peter, you know Jesus doesn't care. And Peter had been hanging out with him and kind of backed off because he cared what other people thought. And Paul called him out on it. He said, Peter, you know Jesus doesn't care about this. So why are you now acting this way? You act one way here and say another thing there. Knock it off. Ooh. It's interesting that Peter also, though, becomes someone that we'll find out later in chapter 3 of the First Peter, the letter. He writes and says, Paul is a great teacher. Listen to him, to the early church. So Peter owned his wrong, owned that he screwed up, owned that Paul was right, and said, hey, in fact, guy's so right. I think he's a great teacher. Listen to what he has to say. He has a good understanding of who Jesus actually is. But here's the reality. Over time, Peter was transformed. Peter was changed. In fact, if you're Roman Catholic, you would talk about the apostolic succession from Peter to the current Pope, right? Peter became the pillar of the church. And so what's it like for us in this, right? His background, understanding the resurrection of Jesus, changed everything. And so Peter began to be this leader in the church, and he would write to churches. And so this is one of the letters he wrote to the church. It's called 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 1, and here's what he writes, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... And that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, enduring word of God. Paul begins this passage with this phrase. This is sober and alert in most of our translations. But if I was going to translate it accurately, I'd say, When you have girded the loins of your mind. What'd you say? I said, when you have girded the loins of your mind. Like, what does that mean? So, okay, in the ancient world, men would often wear robes. And so a robe is not a great thing to run in, right? It's long, it's kind of hard to move fast, your legs can't extend. And so if you really had to get somewhere in a hurry, you would wear a belt with your robe and you would gird your loins. So you would take the robe and you would tuck it into your belt and then you could run, right? It would expose your legs so you could run. But you didn't do it unless it was really important. And so what Peter's saying is this. It's really important that your minds are in line That you're willing to get to work. And so how do we understand that in our day? Well, maybe like roll up your sleeves. Or a a gym, a weight room analogy. Like if you're going to go squat, put on the belt and tighten it up because you're about to do some work. Like whatever it looks like for you, right? Get to work. But you're going to have to prep yourself and be ready to do what I'm about to say. And here's what he goes on to say. He's asking this question. What work are you doing? What work is he calling you and I to do? And here's what he writes, right? We could. He's saying, do not conform to your evil desires, right? Do not conform to them. In fact, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12 that might be helpful for us today. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, again, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So why would both Peter and Paul be talking about the exact same thing? Why would they both write about this? Because the reality is this is one of the central teachings of Jesus. That his people are called to live uniquely different in the world in which we live. Followers of Jesus are called to live with a renewed mind. Before we knew Jesus, right? before we knew what we're called to live out, we can live all kinds of ways. But once you come to know who he is, it should reorient the way in which you and I live our lives. That's why they both talk about the renewing of our mind. So how do we renew our mind? What are you doing to renew your mind? What are you and I watching or reading or listening to? What are things that shape us day in and day out? When you wake up, where's the first place that your mind goes? Was the first thing you think about? Or did you know that you and I can be transformed through the practices of our day, day in and day out? We can do different things, right? So, so I know many of us are formed by screens. It's the first thing we look at in the morning. It's the last thing we look at before we go to bed. I've been guilty of this too. What is it that shapes us? What are the things that reorient our life? What is it? What are the patterns and rhythms and ways in which we live, because those things shape us over time. But here's the cool part. Did you know that we can be changed? Right. Many of us have morning routines, right? Like years ago, people would like get a newspaper at their front step and they would read the newspaper and they'd watch the news and they'd drink a cup of coffee. Now you don't get a newspaper well, some of you do, but just not very often. Right? But but maybe your routine looks different. But whatever it is we do in our routine, did you know like if we just spend a few minutes with God every morning? And that was how we began our days? Just a few minutes in silence. Just a few minutes just in reflection. Just a few minutes thinking or praying on scripture. Did you know that that might reorient our days and it would transform our minds? It would, over time. Right, because the transformation of our mind is necessary because of what Peter writes next. Here's what he wrote. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am Holy. So in other words, the people of God are to work at not conforming and to work at being holy. Holiness is one of these weird things, right? It's this idea that we're to be more and more like God, but we're to do it in this unique way. It is God's work and our work combining together that makes us holy. It's always God's work, but then we have a role to play in this, right? So here's what the word hagios is, the word for holy, and here's how we can understand this, right? The word for holy is hagios, whose root meaning is different, the temple is hagios because it is different from other buildings. The Sabbath is hagios because it is different from other days. The Christian is hagios because they are different from other people. So the goal isn't just to be different, right? Because like, too many times Christians are just weird. We don't want to be weird. The goal is not to be just a weird person. Right? Social awkwardness is not the goal, right? That's not the goal of faith. The goal of faith is to be different in the way that we love. The way that we live out our love. The goal is not to just try to be, well, it says to be, I guess holy means different. I'm just gonna be super weird. That is not the goal. The goal is to love more and more like Jesus. And here's what we find. He invites us to be this radically unique people in the world, defined as a holy people. We're reminded that Jesus redeemed us through his life and his death and his resurrection. He desires to deliver us from whatever it is that has held us in bondage in our sins or whatever it might be. And to restore us in the image in which we were created. This is the desire he has for us, that the resurrected life of Jesus would reorient who we are, would offer us new life so that our past, our reputation, could be transformed. Our character could be changed so we could look and sound and act more like Jesus. Said differently, Peter wants to remind us that Jesus' resurrection is the way of our restoration. Jesus' resurrection is the way of our restoration. He wants to make us radically different. He wants to deliver us from the things that have held us in different ways. He wants us to recognize in a world in which many of us believe we can be God, you're like, well, I don't think I can be God. Well, here's what I mean. If you or I are the center of our life, if I'm the most important thing in my own life, I'm God to myself. Like This is reality. In the world in which we live, most people, their life revolves solely around them. And that's the definition of what we worship. And so what would happen if if I'm God of my own life? That's not a very good God, by the way. But coming to know Jesus, I can come to know who God actually is. And he can redeem me. And I can be transformed. We can know the God that is creator of all who loves us, who through his son, who died for us. So that you and I can know the depth of God's love. So that could define the very nature of who we are. And this is what Peter writes throughout the New Testament, what others have said as well. He says about the people of God are called resident aliens, right? They're strangers in a strange land. They live as uniquely different. And why do they live uniquely different? Because there's a unique way of living that stems from what it looks like to be a holy people, to live lives surrendered to the person of Jesus and to live radically different. Right? I love And he writes definition of holiness. I think it's kind of helpful. It's being set apart for God in every part, and at every level. Say, okay, God, you can have every aspect of my life, all that I am. I want to live every moment of every day for you. I want to live every way I can to follow after you in all that I am. Because if we live as people of unique citizenship to God's kingdom, what does God's kingdom look like? What does citizenship in Jesus' kingdom look like? Jesus tells us again and again, And all his teachings. In fact, what we'd find is this in Matthew 5, 6, 7 is the central teaching of Jesus. Like there's a whole lot more, but I'm just gonna give kind of a a brief overview that might be helpful for us today. Right? These are the unique things of his kingdom and his people. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. Wait, I don't like this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even become angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, you shouldn't lust. You've heard it said, you can swear an oath on this or not that, but I say, just be honest. Let your yes be yes your no be no. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Get even, in other words. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you might be called children of your Father in heaven. Right, this line. So when you give to the needy, not if you, but when you give to the needy, when you pray, there's something assumption that you will do this. And then what do you pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We would live in such a way that the, the values of God's kingdom of heaven would break into the here and the now in our everyday lives. We would live in that way. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wait, Wait, so if I don't forgive other people, you're not going to forgive me? Yes. I don't like that one so much. When you fast, right? Not if, but when you fast, fasting, abstaining from food. I like food. I don't like this one, but it's, he says, when you fast, do not store up for yourselves treasures, Of all kinds. You can love God or money, but not both. Do not worry. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Right? He uses this weird analogy of like a speck in your eye and a plank in someone else's eye. It's like a picture of saying like, hey, don't point out the flaws in others when you have your own. So in everything, do to others what you'd have them do to you. Call it the golden rule, right? It's not don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. It's do for others. Wait, you mean I'm called to live and treat other people the way I wish I was treated regardless of their response? Yes. But that's just a summary of not everything from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus teaches way more than that. See, the people who call themselves followers of Jesus are called to live radically different lives as disciples, as apprentices of Jesus, to live in such a way that our life is reoriented around the person of Jesus. You and I are called to embrace this radical citizenship into his kingdom, which impacts our money, our sex life, our daily practices, the way we do business, the way we speak and care about others, the way we raise our kids, the way we care about other people's kids. It should change everything about who we are. But why would we live from that place? Why would we do those things? Because we've come to know the depth of God's love seen in his son Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we want to live from a place of loving obedience because we've come to know the one who loves us more than words could ever express. And well, We've come to know that with the overflow of our life to be that. We're said this way, as one scholar put it, The holy life is first, simply, and continually letting God in Christ love us to the depth of our need, and in turn, sharing that love with others. To live a holy life is something we do in response to God's love. It's the work that we do. It's the rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. It's the idea that he's going to transform our hearts and our minds, but we're going to work at it with him, in relationship with him, So like we talked about the rhythms and patterns of our life, what you're doing right now in this moment being a part of corporate worship is one of the ways that God uses to transform us so that we become more and more the holy people he has called us to be. Or said another way, here's another quote, the great characteristic of the life of God is love. And the Christian must show that divine love to people. If you've received it, you're called to give it. Period. Period you've received it you're called to give it and the christian life is meant to be defined by love of other people and right here's the reality there's some people we just don't like i get it There are people i don't like either but did you know that one of the hardest ways to dislike people long term right maybe it's a coworker or a boss or whatever it might be i don't don't know those are easy ones to pick on right if there's someone in your life that's hard for you to love if you begin to pray for them every single day did you know it's really hard to not like them if you keep praying for them It really is. Over time, it's hard to not have genuine affection for them if you pray for them every single day. It is nearly impossible. And this is one of the ways that God transforms our hearts is by the way that he calls us to pray for people that we wouldn't normally pray for, and it will change us over time. Today is the third Sunday of the Easter season. The third Sunday in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This idea... That God did the unthinkable through him. That God can not only change our reputation, but change our life. We can be living one direction, but he can take in what seems to lead to death and brokenness and decay. God can redeem and restore our own lives, our families, our homes, our workplaces, whatever they might be. And the resurrection of Jesus changed all kinds of things. Have you noticed how in your own life, um, it's hardest to be a changed person around your family, especially, have you noticed this? It's true in my life, even to this day. The people, it's hardest for me to be the person I want to be around my brothers and my sister and my parents. Still. I'll turn 40 this summer, and that's still the hardest group of people for me to be like who God wants me to be around. Still. I keep thinking it's going to change. It hasn't yet. But have you also noticed that people who see you the most and around you the most are the ones who are least likely to notice the biggest changes in your life the fastest? Right? Maybe, like here's some, some kind of bad examples, but they're examples. Maybe you've lost a bunch of weight. But the people you live with haven't noticed, right? right? Your spouse is like oblivious to it. But the friend you haven't seen since college, they see you like, oh my goodness, you look so good. And you're like, thank you, someone notices. But it's because you're with them every day, right? So it's just a subtle change over time. Or maybe you're the person that you've had a real anger issue and you blow up at all kinds of stuff and you're just a hothead. And so the group of guys you play golf with, they notice you quit throwing the golf club as much. Like, hey, you've not thrown the golf club for a long time. That's pretty cool, man. And yet your family still thinks that you're a hothead. So you're like, but I'm getting better. Right? This is the reality that we can be changed. And so much so, because you know, if you, if you go back and read the New Testament, Jesus' reputation with his own family was okay. In fact, they're like, would you just stop teaching people and stop acting like you're so great? Mom's trying to talk to you. so much that his reputation, oh, his character never really changed, but his reputation changed so much in his own family that his own brothers began to worship him. Now, I, I gotta be honest with you. I don't really want you to talk to my siblings. I'm afraid what you might hear. Jesus' siblings began to worship him because they truly believe he was the son of God. Right? That's when your reputation is radically transformed. So years ago, I spent time in student ministry, and there's a phrase we used to use with teenagers, right? Over and over again, I'd hear this phrase. Um, Youth ministry is not about behavior modification, but spiritual transformation. And so, I I mean, and there's a reason I put youth in parentheses, because I think sometimes we think church should be the same way. Um, right? We'd say, well, why are they acting that way? Well, one, their prefrontal cortex are not developed. Their brains are not all the way developed. They can't help it. They're just dumb. Sorry, you teenagers in the room, you make dumb decisions. You also do really awesome things. But you do do some dumb stuff. And so people go, man, why, why are they you know, not sitting where they're supposed to sit or not doing that? I'm like, I, I, do you want them here or not? Right? Like, I'm happy they're at church. So I'm going to not care about some of the stuff you care about. But here's the other part of this, right? Um, when we recognize that there is spiritual transformation, often there's a behavior modification that comes with it. We've we've often taught in the church like it's um, so. This is a phrase I heard a lot too, right? Um, Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? Like, all right, got it. Makes sense. Cool. It's weird to see a girl with a dip in. So anyway, um, probably a good idea. But but the idea is that don't do these right these behaviors because you'll live a radically different life. And at one level, there is truth that if you you can. Act your way into a new way of being. Because if I just it's just something mental or in my heart, it's not going to be transformed, right? If my behavior doesn't change, then I probably haven't met Jesus to begin with. I say, yeah, we we do want spiritual transformation. We want you to encounter the love of God in such a way that it changes who you are. And by virtue, your behavior will change. You'll learn to love people more. Sometimes we do do the right practices with a wrong heart, but over time, God even changes our heart. So it's both of these things coming together that create the holiness within us. We play a role in this, and so it is our outward and our inward behavior. And we learn to live from that place. What begins to happen next is what, what Peter writes about. That we'll learn to love one another deeply. Right? John writes about the essence of God is love. God is love. When we've come to encounter him in such a way that we begin to live from a place of love, it will transform everything in us and others around us. Said differently, the holy life is inextricably linked to love of God and others. You cannot separate it out. If you do not love other people, then you maybe haven't come to know God. But what might happen if you and I encountered him in such a way? What if we encounter him in such a way that our reputations may or may not be changed? Right, I've got to be honest with you. There's some probably seasons of my life, especially as a teenager, maybe in college or seasons where uh, if you met certain people who knew me then, I might not love what you might hear or their reputation of me then. It's probably true for many of us. I have no control over what they may or may not say about me even to this day. None. But I can live as a person who has a transformed character. I can live as a person who is radically different, who knows, I know who I am today, right? I can be that person. I can learn to live and love more like Jesus. I can be made holy because of his resurrection and the new life that he offers me and the same thing he offers you, right? Because here's the reality. I can't control my legacy. I can't control my reputation. But I can say this. I hope that when I die, my kids will say, hey, my dad was a great dad. He loved us and he loved Jesus and he loved other people. But did you know I have no control over whether or not they will say that? Scary. But if my behavior and my heart match up with that, then the day that I die, they might repeat that. You and I can't control our reputations. People will say what they'll say. But we can learn to have a transformed character so that the overflow of that might lead to a transformed reputation and life. What might happen if you and I entrusted all of our life Jesus. What might happen if you and I said, okay, I believe that Jesus died for us, that he loves us, that he wants to forgive my sin and my brokenness, and he wants to redeem and restore it. But maybe today you haven't fully embraced that, or maybe today you feel like there's something so big in your life that you've never fully surrendered to him that you haven't been changed. Something. Peter writes that Jesus was without defect or blemish. He was this perfect sacrifice to offer up. This idea that he was the one who offered all that was necessary to become all that God had created you and I for. But Maybe you feel like you're not worthy of that today. You feel like you're not good enough. You're not loved enough. You're not valued enough. You've not loved others well enough. Like there's a stain in your life that's holding you back. I I love this story that John Ortberg um, told years ago in a book, and here's what he wrote. Since some years ago, we traded in my old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. It was roughly the shade of Pepto-Bismol, but because it represented to us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when he found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. It's good advice, by the way. But we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children, we said. Give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, we all knew clearly the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in this house, you may freely sit. But upon the sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. (laughs) Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it. Laura, age four, and Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children? She asked, that's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me to put this, who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't, because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't, because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mop sofa, and I knew I wasn't saying anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, such as in a book I was going to write, maybe. The truth is, of course, that we've all stained the sofa. Some of the stains are small and barely noticeable, but some of them bleed through the entire fabric of our lives. I don't know what it is that might be the stain on the sofa of your own life, or your own heart. I don't know what it is that's keeping you from surrendering everything to God, that you're ashamed to tell, or too guilt-ridden to bear. But I know one of the coolest things about the crucifixion of Jesus as he offers up this selfless sacrificial. He offers himself fully to us. And what we find at the resurrection, he finds new life. And the same is true for you and I. When we surrender fully, when we let go entirely, we entrust everything to him. It's not that we just die and we're done. It's that we die to something only to find new life in which we've never known before. When Peter writes, be holy because... I am holy. He's quoting the book of Leviticus who's, and Jesus says the same words. It's this idea that you and I can live a holy life if we will fully surrender ourselves to him. If we'll let go of everything in our life. If we'll say, God, this thing, this red stain in my life, I've been holding on to for so long. I want to let go. It's yours. I don't need it any longer. But here's the reality for you and me in that. It requires honesty. All right? What's the thing at the end of the day? you look back more days than not, and you go, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't said that. Day after day, month after month, year after year, there's this thing that keeps coming up that you've never fully surrendered to God and said, God, you can have it, all of it. It's all yours. And maybe today, God's saying, hey, it's this. Will you trust it to me? Will you let me have it? Will you say, God, it's It's yours. God, I, I've been holding on too long, right? We're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask Mac to come and play, because now I asked him last time, so he actually knows it was coming now, and I didn't ask him before. But Mac, would you, would you come and play for us? And I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning that if there's something in your life that you know God is calling you to let go of, to step out in, that God wants to make you and I holy, but there's something we are holding on to that we will not let go of, will you, And just in these moments, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to take a step. And it may feel like it is a massive Giant step. But if you take one step, one small step forward, what you begin to find is God will take all that you desire to leave in his hands. In fact, um, when Peter writes that this is the lamb without defect, of spots, blameless, he's talking about the way there was a sacrificial system that existed in the Old Testament, but it was this idea that they would think, bring things to the altar, they would lay them down as a sacrifice to God and say, God, I, I want to be made holy. Right, we don't believe in the sacrificial system more, Jesus kind of did away with that but we do believe this idea, that there's something that happens when we come to an altar, a place in which we say God, you can have all of my life this area that I've been holding back, this part of me that, that I'm not loving the way you call me to love, that I want to live the way you have called me to live this morning, if that's you, in just a moment I'm going to invite, I'll ask actually everyone to stand and then as I pray, if you want to come and say God, will you just take this part of my life we want me to surrender it to you so it doesn't, it's not a burden on me anymore? Right, because here's the reality. We may have like, stains on the sofa of our lives, but God says, ah, I can get that out. I can make that new. I can clean that. So whether it's your reputation or your character that needs transformed, if you'll take one step towards Jesus, he'll continue to meet you where you are, and his spirit will transform your heart and your mind and your life. I know he has, and he continues to do that work in my life. So you stand with me this morning, and we pray with me. And As I pray, if you just feel like God's tugging on your heart, that you want to let something go, I'd invite you to come and kneel and pray. And Mac will continue to, pr- to play as we, as we pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, that if there's something in our lives we need to surrender to you, that we would let go. And Father, we would say it's yours, that you can have all of it, whatever it might be. Father, we know you call us to be a holy people and it's really hard to do on our own. But somehow your spirit can transform us and remake us into your image and you can change our hearts and our minds and our lives and we can live as your unique people. And so Father, will you help us to surrender our whole selves to you? As Peter writes, we live imperishable seed that we live as people who have come to know what it means to be born again to have new life to live as followers of your son Jesus to recognize that he died for us that he loves us more than words could ever express that you desire to live in relationship to us and Father as we think about the words of your scripture you call us over and over again to be a people of love because that is who you are you are a God of love so often we've got it wrong, and so will you forgive us for the moments we have not been who you've called us to be? We you forgive us for the moments in which we have been more worried about our reputation than our character? We you forgive us for the moments we're more concerned about what others think of us than what you think of us? Father, whatever it is that you desire for us to surrender, may each of us in this room, may we each surrender to you. I find the and the grace that not only do we find that we'll leave something there, that you desire for us to live a new life. So Father, help us in these moments to live as people of a resurrection. Believe in a God who did the unimaginable that seems so impossible to offer new life, but you extend it to us today. May we entrust all these things to you pray this all in your son Jesus